Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 6th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On today's podcast, as Theresa May winds up her two-day visit to Northern Ireland, London editor Dennis Staunton will give us his assessment of where exactly her Brexit strategy stands and what its chances of success are. We are also going to be joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and a little bit later by Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee to discuss the blame game over the huge cost overrun for the new National Children's Hospital and what it means for the government, plus whether turmoil in Venezuela might ruffle the feathers of independent ministers. But first to Theresa May and her apparent shift yesterday on what changes might be needed to the backstop. Here she is speaking in Belfast. I know that many people in Northern Ireland and indeed across this island are worried about what Parliament's rejection of the withdrawal deal means for them. So I'm here today to affirm my commitment and that of the United Kingdom government to all of the people of Northern Ireland of every background and tradition to affirm my commitment to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, to its successors, the St Andrews Agreement and the Stormont House Agreement, and to the principles they enshrine, which is absolute, and to affirm my commitment to delivering a Brexit that ensures no return to a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which is unshakable. Now, Dennis Staunton, you write in this morning's Irish Times that that speech marked, a, a quote, an important shift in Britain's official position on the backstop as she prepares to be Jean-Claude Juncker and Donald Tusk in Brussels. Um, how, how significant a shift? I do notice there's noises of discomfort from the, the hard Brexit wing of the Tory party this morning. Yes, I, I think it's it's a shift. I mean, obviously, there have been a number of shifts in her policy over the last few weeks. And so, uh, you know, the speech in Belfast was a particularly difficult one for her in the sense that a lot of the people in her audience were people who had gone out defending the backstop, defending the agreements that she had negotiated, only to see her apparently abandoning it last week when she uh, told her MPs to vote for this Graham Brady Amendment. And what the Graham Brady Amendment said was they'd support the withdrawal agreement if the Northern Ireland backstop was replaced faced with alternative arrangements. And what she said in Belfast yesterday was, yes, you could fulfil this purpose, as expressed in the Great Brady Amendment, by replacing the backstop with alternative arrangements, meaning technology or administrative fixes, on the one hand, or by making changes to the backstop, such as a time limit or a unilateral exit mechanism. And the significance of this is that although uh, the European Union and Ireland have rejected the idea of making these changes like a time limit and the unilateral exit mechanism. These at least are demands that are negotiable. Whereas the other ideas which she was embracing and which the uh, the so-called uh, Malthouse Compromise envisages, which is really a wholesale ripping out of the backstop to be replaced by untested uh, you know, uh, means of technology, that is just, it doesn't get you onto the dance floor at all. So in that sense, it's a shift and it's a very clear and very deliberate shift uh, in terms of the language, because not only did she say that in Belfast, both in the text of the speech and also in the questions and answers, 
it. But in the official readout from the cabinet yesterday, they also referred to changes and and essentially to having a couple of options. You can do it this way or you can do it that way. And this would achieve, she thinks, a majority in the House of Commons. Well, well, she thinks being the operative term there. And when she does go to Brussels, I think it's generally accepted that there isn't really going to be any significant movement in the in the next few days in advance of, of, of February the 12th. When she goes to actually talk meaningfully in, in Brussels, will they not look behind her back at people like, like I'm looking at the, the, the Brexiteer MP Nadine Dorries, who tweeted just this morning, I quote, a legally binding limit won't pass in Parliament, full stop. And they'll say, how, how can we have any confidence that this time it'll be different and you'll be able to deliver? Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly, I think, what they will uh, look at. I think when you look at the uh, the Brexiteers, the European Research Group led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, the thing is that they're not a monolith. And so what the government hopes is that although you probably have some element that will never vote for anything, that that could be... 20 or it could be 40 MPs. But if you get it down towards 20 rather than towards 40, then you have a chance of making up those numbers, particularly if you get the DUP on board. And the DUP have been making uh, really quite conciliatory noises in the last few days. The feeling at Westminster is that the DUP want a deal. And uh, and, and so their alliance with the European Research Group, which is always something of a tactical alliance, is not something that they're not all necessarily going to march over the top together. Because as far as the DUP is concerned, what their bottom line is, is that they don't want any extra divergence between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And so uh, if you can get the DUP on board, that encourages a lot of Brexiteers to believe, well, if it's good enough for them, then we can't really be more whatever than the DUP. And so uh, and, and so that you then isolate this smaller group of Brexiteers. And then the hope is that uh, she could then get some Labour MPs who have already been uh, wooed by the promises of more money for their constituencies, and also who are just afraid of the idea in leave voting seats of being seen to stop Brexit or to block it. And so I think that, th- that her uh, calculation right now is is that if she actually can get some legally binding changes to the backstop or uh, legal legally binding assurances or something, it has to be a bit more than just a letter from Jean-Claude Juncker, that then she is in with a chance. One of the crucial things, and you mentioned these, uh, this date of next week, and uh, so on the 13th uh, of February, on Wednesday, uh, Theresa May will come back and she will present another motion on Brexit, which won't really say anything, but it will be an emotion that they can amend, rather like they did last week. And and then on the uh, on the 14th of February, on Valentine's Day, then all of these amendments can come back, including the amendment from Yvette Cooper. And Yvette Cooper's amendment would open the way for MPs to be able to oblige the government to uh, seek an extension to the negotiating period, in other words, postpone Brexit, rather than uh, go into a no-deal Brexit on March the 29th. If the government loses that vote, and if the Cooper Amendment, which didn't pass last time, if it passes this time, then what that means is that that immediately it gives a further advantage to the European side, because effectively Parliament is saying, we will not leave without a deal. And it also then puts Mrs. May in a position where she's going to have to ask for an extension of the negotiating period, which is a further negotiation with the European Union for which they can ask for conditions. But on the other hand, if, as the cabinet currently seem to feel is likely, if they can succeed in defeating the Cooper Amendment again, then 
you're you move into five minutes to midnight because then you're really saying to the uh, to the Europeans, look, uh, this notion of yours that we can get another majority in the House of Commons for a softer Brexit, customs union or whatever, it's not going to happen. This is the only way to go. Pat, what's your read? Yeah, I'm interested um, in what Dennis says there as, as Mrs May's speech yesterday being a deliberate shift of position, a subtle but, but important shift of position on, on, uh, on the part of Mrs May and on the part of Downing Street. I spoke to people in the Irish government yesterday and they that was how they perceived it as well. Now, I suppose time will tell as to whether it is actually a strategic shift towards you know, something on a time limit or something on an exit mechanism from the backstop away from the technological solutions which are believed in both in Dublin and in in, uh, in Brussels to be, you know, a unicorn or, 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 or not, not something that will come to pass in any realistic, any realistic fashion. Now, um, I, I, I think... You know, if you look at the Irish government's statement last night, which didn't resile from any of its positions, but it was slightly, I thought, softer in tone in response to what uh, uh, Mrs May said in, uh, uh, in Belfast yesterday. Now, I don't think there's any business going to be done until after these votes next week. And the big fear both in Dublin and Brussels is that Mrs May seeks something in negotiations. She gets it, but then she can't get it through the House of Commons. So what they will look for, I think, is votes in the House of Commons, strong indicative votes that give them comfort that any sort of negotiation, and there's no certainty as to that, as to whether that will be successful or not, but any sort of negotiation on a, on a new protocol or an additional protocol that does something about a time limit or an exit mechanism or some sort of a, a statement or, the, or, or a codicil, as has been suggested in certain, uh, uh, in certain quarters, uh, whether or not that can be successful in getting through the House of Commons, they will require, Dublin and Brussels will require very strong indications, cast iron indications from Parliament. And I wonder if Dennis feels that those are likely are deliverable. Well, indeed, that that would exactly be my question, Dennis. Well, it is possible that uh, once you get into uh, the later stage of the negotiations, the government can really have any votes that it wants in Parliament. And if it wanted to have some kind of an indicative vote, then would be able to do so. I think with all of this, all kinds of concessions in one direction or another are all kinds of ideas that would not do the trick today. They could do the trick in a few weeks' time. So in other words, for a lot of the Brexiteers, just having a a kind of a, a codicil or some kind of legally binding assurance about a time limit wouldn't be enough today. But maybe in early March or the middle of March, it might be. And in the same way uh, where uh, where Ireland and the European Union are concerned, their position is exactly as it has been, which is that the uh, withdrawal agreement can't be renegotiated. But if you're actually heading towards uh, the cliff edge and there does appear to be a real possibility of getting something through, then you know, there probably could be a bit more flexibility. And, uh, but I think that, that it's possible that, you know, that you could have these indicative votes if that's what it takes. Because obviously, Theresa May, one way or another, has to assemble her majority. Having said all of that, if MPs are going to make, uh, you know, uh, are going to vote in ways which are 
unpopular or which could cause them problems. I'm thinking particularly, say, of Labour MPs who might want to vote with the government. And voting with the government can cause an awful lot of grief from their you know, their local membership because the membership of the Labour Party is very pro-EU, pro-Remain. And so, that, uh, so they might prefer to do that just once rather than to do it twice. So you have to, um, you know, obviously you have to be, be careful of how you do it. But having said that, I think, you know, even if she were to have a, a meaningful vote, as, the, as they call it, and it were to go down by five votes or something, then you could certainly see how you could do that again and, you know, and make up the extra vote. So I think one way or another that uh, you probably would be able to test it. Uh, and certainly there's no question but that European leaders don't trust Theresa May's judgment about counting numbers in the House of Commons. And is it a sign, Dennis, of the, the ticking clock getting louder and that Greg Clark, who's the business secretary in the UK, was quoted this morning as saying, actually, the, the, the looming prospect of significant damage to the British economy is closer than some people are saying. It's not in March. He actually mentioned Valentine's Day because yeah. essentially that, that the nature of the way uh, imports and exports work, particularly when it comes to relationships between Britain and, 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 the, and the Far East, is that there's six-week six uh, shipment deliveries and so that people will have to start making decisions uh, based upon the possibility of, of crashing out on the 29th of March. That's exactly right. So that's, uh, and that's again the significance of that date, the middle of of February is 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 one where if there's not a prospect of uh, of a deal being done, then uh, Theresa May will almost certainly have to seek an extension of uh, of the Article 50 deadline because of uh, the fact that there will be the loss of some contracts. Because, as you say, for China, it's six weeks and six weeks in advance. You need to know on what terms these goods are entering China or indeed are entering the UK from China. And so there would there would be not just disruption, but cost involved in all of that. And so, I mean, I think there is an acceptance here at Westminster that no matter what happens, there's going to have to be an extension of the deadline. Because even if uh, she were to get a deal done within a few weeks, it's still there still wouldn't be time to get through all of the enabling legislation that she needs to actually leave the European Union. And so, uh, so you, you know, whatever happens, even in the best case scenario, you'd probably have to have some kind of an extension. And even if, again, the talks break down, uh, I think in Brussels, the uh, general expectation is that uh, they would agree to give an extension of three months or so, just as a kind of last chance saloon. They would say if it was for uh, no deal planning, but basically they'd be saying, right, this is your last chance, but then you really are out at the end of June. Last word from you on this subject. It's, it's still unlikely, I think, that there is any meaningful movement in the next few weeks. I think despite the shuttle diplomacy going on, Taoiseach is in Brussels today, Mrs May is there tomorrow, Taoiseach is in, in, in Belfast on Friday. I think uh, Dublin and Brussels will wait for the outcome of those votes next uh, next week in the Commons. There's a meeting of EU leaders in they're attending the EU-Africa summit. That's in Egypt. Egypt on, I think, the 23rd, 24th of February, I guess Brexit business will be discussed then. And by then you're, uh, you're into March. And I think it's, it's likely that there is no serious business done until the end of this month, the beginning of next month. Right, we shall leave it there. Dennis, thanks as always for joining us. Uh, stick with us. We'll be talking about a fiasco even closer to home, the National Children's Hospital.
And Pat is still here, as are Jennifer and Harry, who were uh, remaining uh, remarkably and unusually quiet uh, during that particular Brexit debate, but uh, given the opportunity to pitch in. Now, first of all, Jennifer, the, the National Children's Hospital, this story seems to be growing and growing, like the, like the cost of the bloody hospital itself, I suppose, but the whole issue of a year, almost a year, in which it was, it was known, at least in some circles, that these costs were starting to grow and to spiral out of control. And that information does not seem to have transferred itself to where it should have, up to the highest levels of government. Yeah, and this is kind of a situation where we're lurching from sort of a controversy into a fully blown crisis. Um, when the story was first revealed before Christmas, I think it came out at a time when the Dáil and Oireachtas committees didn't really have time to sit down and go through the detail and go through the the finer kind of aspects of who knew what and when. But sure, sure enough, once we got back from the Dáil recess, that's exactly where it went. And it's kind of proved, in a sense, to be political dynamite. So um, what we know now, basically, is that there was a steering group This steering group basically was fed into by the Department of Health and by HSE officials uh, who sat on the board. So they... this was essentially the overall board supervising the the management of this project. Yeah, so these would be like some of the most senior officials in Department of Health and HSE. You're talking about Director General, Deputy Director General... Um, and very senior officials in the department. So what the what the minutes of the documents show was that as far back as last uh, August 2017 even, there were concerns raised about an escalation in costs. Now at that stage it was only around 60 million, so it wasn't anywhere in the region of the 450 million that we've seen in, in, in recent weeks. Then in October there was a further meeting. Now at this meeting it seems that the situation was escalating somewhat. They were talking about potentially descoping the project. They were talking about maybe getting capital from other HSC capital plans, maybe using philanth- uh, philanthropy or perhaps asking uh, Department of Public Expenditure for additional funding. So that sounds like a sort of a crisis meeting at that point. Yeah, I think at this stage things are really starting to escalate. And also at that meeting there was a discussion about this guaranteed maximum price. This is what everybody's been focusing on the last few weeks. It's basically the maximum that it could possibly go to. So they knew at that stage that they didn't have the maximum. So they knew that they weren't that they had this sum, which could be massive, but they didn't have the awareness of exactly what it was. So if you fast forward then into the early stages of 2018, uh, in the first couple of months, the situation escalates even further. What we see from the minutes of the meetings that there was a dispute with the contractor about the cost. This dispute could not be agreed upon and that they had to bring it to an independent adjudicator and that they they hadn't arrived at this guaranteed maximum price yet. So this goes on all throughout March. Um, we have John Pollock, who is the National Director of the Paediatric Board, talking about um, how the agreements with the contractor are unsatisfactory and how the issue had been escalated. Um, and then in April, the board is discussing further financial risks. John Pollock again um, and then we have the HSE basically asking what are the financial risks. So this is going on throughout March, throughout April. Then in May, uh, the issues escalate again. We can see that they still don't have their guaranteed maximum price. Eventually, we get ahead to August and they're giving an estimate. So they were given an estimate about what the contractor had found, what they finally landed on as the price. So this is a key point. Simon Harris has said that he only became aware of a potential issue in relation to an escalation of costs in late August. It's his case and it's his position that he didn't actually know what that figure was. I think there's been a lot of scepticism about that, given the fact that we now know there was an estimate in August and given the fact that you would think that your first question would be when you're told there's a massive overrun coming down the line with this project, you would ask how big? And it's his position that he didn't ask that and in fact they didn't know until November. Kind of hard to believe, Pat. 
Well, what it's, what's clear from the story this morning is that there was a significant degree of knowledge about significant overruns and debate within the system at the very highest official level about this for months and months before it is elevated to political level. That's unusual. Uh, some people may say it is unbelievable, but that's the story that we're being asked, uh, we're being asked to believe. What I find even more difficult to believe is that when Simon Harris is briefed on the fact of an overrun last August at a time when he is just, and if you think about that in terms of the political calendar, uh, August, late August, September, early October is the time when there is intense political activity around budgets. All minds are focused on All minds are focused on the uh, budget for the following year, which gives ministers their allocation, both capital and current spending for the following year. It's particularly, it's usually particularly intensive in the Department of Health because from early last year, it was known that there was a large overrun on current spending budgets in the in the Department of Health. So there's an even more than intense than elsewhere focus in budgets on the department uh, uh, in the Department of Health and particularly on overspending in the current uh, in, in, in their current budget. And what we're asked to believe is that when he is told about this that Simon Harris's next sentence is something like, Don't tell me anything about this and don't tell me anything more until you have an exact figure, and then I will bring it to government. Rather than, well, are we talking, what class of an overrun are we talking about? Are we talking about 50 million or 100 million or 200 million? He doesn't want to know any of that. And that I find, I find extremely unusual. Another aspect as well, which I think has been quite extraordinary, which we talked about a little bit yesterday, was this uh, blame game between the Department of Public Expenditure and the Department of Health. Mm. Behind the scenes there, and a clear as for everyone to see now, there's a lot of tension, whether this is in relation to kind of the, the budget generally or this specifically, we can this see... This is because of these endless budget overruns every year. Which exactly, exactly. Delivery. And we, uh, Pascal Donoghue was in front of a finance committee yesterday and he basically said it would have been preferable if Simon Harris had told him about this sooner. Look, it would have been uh, uh, helpful, obviously, to be aware of this issue as it was developing. Uh, but... As I said, Minister Harris was doing across that period what he should have been doing, which is to understand the scale of the issue and to uh, be in a position to fully brief government once he was confident with it, which yeah. he did. Now, that's Pascal Donoghue's very, very polite way of throwing Simon Harris under the bus, in my opinion. He did it very politely, but he did it nonetheless because it's, it's, a, it's kind of an unusual thing for him to say and I think that uh, in terms of the official that's, that sits on the finance uh, committee, there's been a lot of talk about him, about why he didn't uh, report to the minister and why he didn't make clear what the concerns were. And have you any idea why that is? Well, they say he was uh, sitting on the uh, board in a personal capacity, in an individual capacity, and that they're bound by confidentiality agreements, so he couldn't escalate matters of financial concern to the government. Now, now, the opposition that, say that's that absolutely That seems strange bogus. to me. I know that people get nominated to boards by, sometimes by, 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 by government bodies, and they do act as, as once they're nominated, uh, as essentially as private members of the board. But if somebody's a public servant, 
and they're appointed to a board. This That's the, somewhat different. Yeah, isn't this it? is the argument, and there is also a circular from 2010 which states that if a civil servant has a concern and they're on a board, that they can es- escalate it to the minister. Firstly, they bring it to the chair. And if they're not satisfied, then they can go beyond that themselves. That wasn't done. So there's a lot of kind of blame game around that as well. Because when we asked the Department of Public Expenditure, why didn't he do this? They said, well, actually, it's the Department of Health that's accountable here. So they were pointing over to health, health somewhat pointing over to, you know, the other departments. So there's a huge kind of, there's a basically running for cover. Yeah, there's a, the, 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 this is a massive failure of control of the public finances. Indeed, and, and there's people a people are scattering to avoid. There's the a lot. There's a lot to tease out here. I mean, Harry, but one is it just seems to be extraordinary to me that the minister responsible for what is generally regarded as well, it's certainly you know one of the most expensive departments with regular budget overruns for many years. It's embarking on its most significant capital project of this decade um, that project starts running into trouble and the trouble becomes more and more intense over the course of seven, eight, nine months uh, none of the public servants who are ultimately answerable to the minister for that department communicate that that fact to him until about ten months in and when they do communicate that fact to him he doesn't immediately try and find out as much as possible as he can, particularly, as Pat mentions, at the moment when budget decisions are going to be made in the following weeks. Yeah, they're the points that, that have been made. The most significant line from that story, in my estimation, is the, the quote, in May, a Department of Health Assistant Secretary advised the board to go to government for a decision before the 2019 estimates process September would be better than October, and that never happened, and that was uh, a very uh, big uh, failure uh, in my estimation. Simon Harris's defence, I spoke to him on Monday, was that when they came to him in August, uh, they said there was an overrun and that they weren't in a position to tell him the extent of the overrun because they had to have negotiations uh, with the contractors and with the design team and they also had an expert group in to determine the e- exact uh, extent of the overrun. And they only uh, arrived at the conclusion uh, of those calculations uh, in November, on the 9th of November, when he was told in Pascal Donnell. That's not strictly correct going by what Jennifer said. Has it that, that some clarity, some clarity at least, had been achieved about the scope, the scale of the problem being well, addressed by, by August? Yeah, OK, well, you just have to look at what their response to all this was. I think the 60 million that they referred to from the, from the previous year, I think they're talking about uh, an unexpected additional item. I think it was a sprinkler system that was insisted upon by, by on board's Planola. I think it might have happened in the wake of the Granville fire disaster in London uh, where they wanted extra specifications and this added 60 million to the total. That might be the excuse or the scale uh, for that. But as Jennifer shows in the series of uh, ministry has of the steering group meetings, there were concerns being expressed uh, about an overrun and they should have percolated up to the top at a much earlier stage uh, than August. So Simon Harris is in the same position that Francis Fitzgerald and other ministers were uh, uh, in the past when they found themselves in the in the middle of a crisis. They have to explain uh, why they didn't learn of something earlier, uh, should they have learned of something earlier, and if they didn't learn of something earlier, why didn't they make efforts to do that? And I think that Simon Harris has found himself in, to put it very mildly, a spot of bother in relation uh, to that. The, the other point, though, about the political context for this is that this comes uh, during a period when the government, at 
every opportunity is trumpeting this great project as its flagship capital project. The biggest thing that the government did in the abortion referendum aside in the first half of last year was the Ireland 2040 plan, which committed to spending more than 100 billion euros uh, in, uh, in capital plans. And at every single launch and at every opportunity, they would ref- ref- refer to the Children's Hospital as the flagship project. And it is extremely unusual that the officials didn't at some stage during this uh, during this process, tap somebody on the shoulder and say, I wouldn't be going on about that children's hospital so much if I were you. There's a bit of a problem there. Especially in April when you considered that the minutes showed that there was uh, a price discrepancy between what the surveyors had said and what the contractors had said. So clearly both of them had two different prices. Officials were aware. They were sitting there. They were briefed. Why wasn't the minister told of that? I mean, it actually is kind of incredible and the other part there seems to be in fairness now there seems seems to be there seems to have been fundamental errors made uh, at the tender stage and afterwards I mean one of the things the government has had recourse to saying is that it's locked down prices at 2016 levels but one of the things that it didn't do in 2016 and the design team should have done it is that it should have locked down the quantities Mm -hmm. so you had 2016 prices but nobody had any idea of the quantities that would be required. And at committee last week, uh, the, a, a senior official uh, accepted that they, they, they had provided for 5,000 kilometres of cable. And that was clearly insufficient for the project and escalated cost uh, by uh, a multiple. Um, as well, you know, the uh, Leo Varadkar in 2016, when the contract was signed, said, this hospital, save asteroids. for asteroids hitting the planet, this project will be finished by 2020. He should have learned from the history of all the capital projects in the past 30 years that they never, rarely uh, get completed on time. Tala Hospital took 20 years. Many of the road projects were way behind, as was the Lewis project, the first one. So, uh, and then um, to add insult to injury, uh, then they said 2021 and now it's going to be early 2022. And that six month delay, the new six month delay that that's emerged in the past year or so is going to cost the taxpayer uh, uh, something like three hundred and fifty thousand euro per day. You talk about a, an extra uh, ninety million over the course of only six months. Uh, Pat, what's the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform for? It was it, it was invented in twenty eleven at a time of huge crisis, and it had, as far as I understood it, certain objectives. Perhaps dealing with public expenditure and reform, but maybe that's a simplistic way of looking at it. Um, this would seem to be a classic case where such a department should have a role from the very start. And and, and, and and this is why I feel that we don't yet have a full picture of exactly what happened in this story because, and I, I've written dozens and dozens of stories over the years about tension between the Department of Public Expenditure and the Department of Health because health was overrunning on its budgets all the time and this used drive the Department of Public Expenditure around the twist. So the notion that there was a that there was knowledge in the system between the Department of Health, the HSE, and the Department of Public Expenditure about budget difficulties at this uh, uh, at this project and they weren't acted on or it was let run on for months and months and months before it was brought to political attention strikes me as extremely unusual. Yeah, Brendan, uh, Brendan Howland made the point yesterday that when he was the Minister of Public Expenditure, he would get monthly reports basically detailing where all the different projects were at. He was saying it's extraordinary that 
um, Pascal Donoghue isn't getting those reports or that he wasn't asking or that his official who was sitting on the Finance Committee didn't tell him if these serious concerns were arising because everybody in government agrees. I mean, Regina Doherty was on the radio this morning and she basically said the figures are awful. Everybody agrees that, you know, it's horrific and all different kinds of words that's been used to describe it. Um, there's a lot of talk about accountability. We saw last week that the terms of reference were published for the PwC, the consultants that will examine this. Those original terms of reference said that it will examine the root cause of everything that happened, how the escalation happened, but it will stop short of individual culpability. And there was huge backlash after that came out. Then the, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said at the weekend, well, we could change that. And now we see that the new terms of reference also still kind of stop short of that. Well, basically it says it can examine individual responsibilities and roles, but it can't name anybody. That's up to the department. And Simon Harris has made loads of encouraging noises about how upset he is and personnel changes and all that. So we'll see what happens when they re- when they um, publish that, which actually coincidentally is being published on Brexit Day. Uh, well, and is that one of the issues here? Would this be a more serious crisis for the government, Harry, if we weren't all in the shadow of... Shadow of Brexit. Well, yes, of course, because um, if if we um, well, actually, the the Francis Fitzgerald crisis happened in the in the midst of of the Brexit negotiations as well. But I mean, the the that had concluded, and um, you know, I mean, it's not a uh, Jennifer was saying that it's moved from being a, a a an issue to being a crisis. It's not a full blown crisis yet. We're not into the kind of the maelstrom uh, where uh, a a minister is desperately defending his reputation and his position. He still has questions to answer. Uh, there are still lacuna there. There are still gaps there. But, OK, Brexit is there. Um, but it's still, you know, the front uh, story on our newspaper today. And it's still dominating the agenda. I was listening to the radio this morning and it was a dominant issue. So I'm not trying to compare it with Brexit. Brexit is ongoing. Brexit is a, a fact of life. Uh, it's but Brexit a, a daily is also reaching, it's, it's, it's reaching the critical point. Were it not for Brexit, this would be a full-blown crisis that threatens the future of the government. I've There's no actually doubt about a, that. a huge amount of anger internally in Fianna Fáil at Barry Khan's comment yesterday at the doorstep where we were asking Stephen Donnelly, he was listing all the things that the government are doing wrong in health. There is a big list. And at the end, we kind of said to him, well, you're propping the government up. And he said, well, no, we don't agree with what they're doing. And then Barry Khan kind of swooped in and said, you know, if it wasn't for Brexit, they'd be gone. Um, and I spoke to a couple of Fianna Fáil TDs afterwards and they were pretty annoyed at him, actually, that he'd said that. There was, there seems because to be... that's a, not the basis of... Well, yeah. it is partly the basis. Well, like, he's only saying that he's, he's, he's telling the truth. You know, it is a fact. But when they put it like that, it makes it sound so glib. But we're still, I mean, we're, we're, still, at, we're still at the stage where, where questions are being asked. It hasn't actually escalated into a full-blown political crisis as yet. I mean, Simon Harris is probably uh, in a bind over it and he's going to have to do a lot of explaining. And uh, there might be question marks over his, his future tenability. But it, my uh, supposition is that it, it's at a stage yet uh, where, where the crisis is still kind of escalating, but it hasn't reached the kind of the, um, the, the point uh, where a ministerial career is is over or where, where the future of government has been questioned. Looking, looking ahead, though, it doesn't um, do much good for, I think, what Fine Gael would see as one of its brands, uh, things it would like to be associated with, Pat, which is a sort of a, a competence in the management of, of the economy and, and projects and all the this rest is, of that. This is the real political damage, I think, for Fine Gael, and it is understood by some people within government. Um, if Fine Gael has anything to run on in the next election, it is economic credibility, fiscal prudence, Leo Varadkar's offer of tax cuts, which he unveiled at 
the last Fine Gael or Esh before Christmas and which is clearly going to be his party's signature offer to voters at the next election depends entirely on its economic credibility. And I, I think this breaks through in a way that, you know, kind of talk of budgets, you know, state budgets and overspending in the Department of Health and that sort of thing doesn't really, it's it's immediately understandable and comprehensible by people that the, the building project is costing uh, hundreds of millions more than, uh, than it should have. And also that you might then not get your promised medical facility in some other part of the country as a result. And those are decisions that have to be made by the Cabinet next week when, now, you know, I don't think the cabinet will be announcing the cancellation of individual projects, but they have to find 100 million within the capital budget this year. That will inevitably mean uh, certainly delays in, uh, in in some projects. There will be an almighty row within government over whether those are confined to the Department of Health or whether they are they extend across government. I got two different views from within government about whether that has been agreed yet, and uh, and and I think that will. You know, that's where you get down to the level of individual political fallout for ministers when it comes to this. I mean, this is slightly separate, but it does highlight the kind of the structural uh, flaws that they have and the way that they go about capital projects. Um, Sometimes you see projections for how much something is going to cost and it owes more to wish fulfilment than to real life. You saw a successful tenderer in this case come in 130 million below all the other tenderers and the actual tender price bears no relation to the actual outturn that we'll have in 2021. So, well, there are probably a series of vested interests in underbidding, aren't there? Including the people who actually want to see the project get yes, up off yes, the ground the in the state, first place. They'll the state spends the billions on yeah. capital projects. It's the yeah. paymaster. You, know, you would have thought yeah. that it and has you, you, a system you, for this. And then you have a kind of a, a trick of the loop in terms of the way that it's presented. It's 1.433 million. And they say, well, that's how much it's going to cost. But then there's another 300 million that they're talking mm. about fitting out the hospital, yeah. which I think should be included in the cost. Of course it should. And then you have the IT piece, as they say, in all the best executive rooms. And the IT piece, uh, from experience, always costs multiples, multiples. Of, of what they estimate. Mm. So Jim Breslin's uh, warning that it might cost um, above two billion, I think is going to become uh, a reality. And I'd be concerned then about uh, the estimates and the projections they have for the national the new National uh, Maternity Hospital that's moving to the ground of St. Vincent's. But oh, yeah. the figures for that are real or bear any, any, mm. any relation uh, to reality. So, I, I mean, what happened with roads is a very good example. Roads went way over budget and went way over time. And what happened then was that they started bringing in contractors from abroad, namely from Spain, who had systems, who, had, who, were, who were able to work in relation to economies of scale. Yeah, I heard Bertie Hearn talking about that yeah, very subject so, at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. and they, they brought, I mean, there was another crowd called, called, which came in from Turkey, which were very cheap, but that, that created its own controversy that Joe Higgins highlighted about 10 or 15 yeah. years ago uh, as well. Uh, so they, 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 they are able to, to do it, but I think they need a couple of failures. If you look at Tala Hospital, for example, Tala Hospital was meant to be a five-year project. It took over 20 years. And I can't remember how much over budget went, but it at least went one and a half times over budget as well. Um, I was listening to Andrew McDool he, from the European Investment Bank speaking on the same programme on Sunday. And he said from his experience throughout Europe, hospital budgets are always, or the hospital, the, the outturn is always much higher than what's, uh, what's estimated. So I think they, they need to bring a little bit of realism uh, to the capital project. Look at each of them one by one and say, it's not possible to do all of that for 10 billion. What, what, it, what, it means, what that means, of course, is that the much vaunted capital plan hmm. 
is going to cost an awful lot more than it has yeah, been. Yeah, but that doesn't suit all the glossy slideshows and the fancy videos that we've seen about it over the last 12 months, does it? I they mean, there's a, on, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sales pitch involved in, involved in, in all of that as well. Let me ask a related question. Does this make it even less likely that the nurses are going to get anything out of the government? They had another strike this week and there's more planned. I don't know. I, I think they're two totally separate issues in a sense in that it's capital and the other one is a public service pay agreement. I, I wouldn't really see the link between the two, to be honest. What it does, though, is it weakens the government's it weakens the government's political capital at a time when, according to people in government, they need to stand against, uh, they need to stand, hold their ground against the nurses. Yeah. Now, ultimately, you can't hold out indefinitely if the nurses stay out indefinitely, but how realistic that is for the nurses to stay out indefinitely. Does it not uh, also is, weaken is their, question. their capital in terms of promises that they're making about massive tax cuts that they'll bring in. So when Leo Varadkar made his tax pledge before, at Christmas time, he made that days after finding out about the massive overrun in the National Children's Hospital, which is incredible to think that you know that this is going on and still make this massive political pledge. Although when you think about it, it's politics. It's not that incredible. But it also calls into question their ability to even deliver anything like that. And it goes back to the point that Pat was making about this being the real long-term mm. damage yeah. for the party but, but, beyond kind of the ins and outs of who knew what when and which scalp will be claimed. It's a long-term image problem. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a distinction to be made between a capital project and current spending. A capital project, sure. you're taking a once-off yes. hit. With current spending, you're talking about 300 million euro per annum recurring. You know, We're also talking about an equivalence uh, uh, sensitivity to perceptions of its own competence and its ability to keep control of the purse strings. And there's yeah, a yeah, I mean, political PR level. To a a twelve percent pay claim is a fairly hefty pay claim, and if it were to be granted, I mean, the knock-on effects of that would be pretty dramatic across the public service, and those that would inevitably mean that Leo Varadkar's tax cuts would not eventuate. Finally, I want to I want us to lift our our eyes from domestic matters and uh, I'm sure that um, the political classes in Caracas are shaking in their boots at the prospect of what decision the Irish government might make in terms of who to recognise uh, whether the Maduro government or the, the new government or the, the Speaker of the Assembly who has been recognised as the leader of that country but by many, many countries now including several European ones uh, Does that cause a bit of aggro within our current cabinet, Harry? There's well, a couple of Old lefties in their <laughs> there are well, sentimental attachment to yeah, that's the Chavezistas. That's, that's defining old lefty very, very broadly indeed. Um, there was somebody from... Yeah, the Irish Times, after all. There was, <laughs> there was somebody from one of the rating agencies that came into Ireland many years ago and uh, met a political editor from an esteemed uh, liberal newspaper, not to be named. Um, but um, they were worried about the uh, upcoming coalition, which was going to be Fine Gael and Labour. And they were worried worried that with uh, the Labour Party government that Ireland might be making a dramatic lurch uh, to the left. And the political editor... Restrain your mirth there, Harry. But, uh, <laughs> the political editor said, what are you worried about? This is not going anywhere. Um, there, there might be a couple of noises off uh, from the likes of Finian McGrath and John Halligan in relation to Venezuela. But is it going to amount to a hill of beans? I mean, in reality, no. I mean, they had a kind of a North Korean plan as well. So a little bit like some of Michael D's uh, speeches, I think there is a kind of a high tolerance level uh, for the soundings off of John Halligan and Finney McGrath. But I think that no importance, uh, no anything should really be attached to them. I don't think I don't think any other government or any South American regime will be quaking in its boots. What about then to be, to be more closely aligned Sinn Féin? 
Party, which is basically stuck by the Maduro government, mm. despite the fact well, there's I, plenty I, of evidence, uh, you know, against it. That, that's far more serious. I think that's a a. a I think that's a difficulty for Sinn Féin and that, 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 that encapsulates for me the, 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 the difficult place the party is in at the moment. It's trying to move away from all that, uh, from all these uh, regimes which, which is expressing solidarity and fraternity without kind of testing, you know, uh, the, whether or not, uh, you know, there, there's a kind of a, a democratic base to them. And in my contention, uh, there isn't a democratic base to the government that's there in Venezuela at the moment. And Sinn Féin, I think, too readily accepted it and sent two... Uh, delegates going across. And I think that that, you know, that the party is trying to change. It's trying to become a, a broader party uh, that's taking in um, uh, supporters who would not ne- that might not necessarily have supported all of the aims and means of the party in the past. And if the party is moving on, I think one of the things that the party should really consider is uh, uh, the regimes in the world to which it gives support. And there's some of them which would be legitimate in my view. Uh, but uh, by any yardstick, I think the government in Venezuela in my view, is not digital. But it's going to move on. It's going to leave some people behind it. But it has to. It's a decision. I mean, all parties have to do that. I mean, all parties, as they develop, and uh, especially when they stem from from revolutionary movements or when they st- stem from from a militaristic side, once they embrace democracy, there are things they have to leave behind. And Sinn Féin is going to have to do it in the same way that Fianna Fáil, uh, Fine Gael, uh, the Workers' Party, uh, Democratic Left, and all of those have done it in the past. I wonder, Pat, you know, I mean, it is, as Harry said earlier, it is possible for particular people in Irish politics to kind of have their cake and eat it on these issues, you know, and, you know, Michael D has uh, you know, remained comfortably ensconced in Oris and Uchtaran while being, you know, ambiguous stroke supportive of the government in Cuba, which is far from democratic and has, has a long record of human rights abuses. Yeah, lots of politics is actually about whose side you're on and you pick a side long time ago and people find it difficult to uh, to resile from that side so there is an instinctive uh, support I think amongst lots of people on the left for uh, uh, for the government in Venezuela it's very difficult to reconcile that support with adherence to democratic norms but going back to your original question uh, uh, about whether anyone will be worried about any soundings off from Finian and John Halligan. I think it has uh, little Im- impact domestically and clearly none at all on the broader, uh, the broader international stage. There is clearly an EU move and a move by Western countries against uh, the government of, uh, of Maduro. I actually asked the Department of Foreign Affairs about this uh, the other day and I got a sort of a tortured answer about, um, about, the, about Ireland recognising countries rather than governments. Really? Um, so it's unlike all the other countries which have, um, which have recognised the government in the last... Ireland just doesn't do that. No, we are not recognising... We're not recognising government. This, of course, is, is not really true. We yeah. recognise that there is a government in... Uh, in in Venezuela and such hiberno-Venezuelan 
contacts as may be taking place, which is zero, I suspect, will be no, no Bolivarian solidarity going on there. No, will be between the existing uh, the existing government. But it does it does uh, I, I suppose put some people in a slightly awkward uh, situation. But I think they have other fish to fry at the moment. Yeah, many fish to fry. We'll be considering those, no doubt, over the next few weeks. Thanks very much to Pat, to Jennifer, and to Harry, and also to Dennis for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks very much for listening.